The problem with life's interruptions is that it really boils down to our own assumptions. It's how we view these things that count, how we respond that matters most. C.S. Lewis said it like this, the great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. Friends, God uses life in order to disciple us, and so discipleship never stops. During the time we call interruptions, God is doing some of his most important work in us. The moments that take us away from the, our real life, the things that distract us from our real work, distract us from the good things, the important things, the essential things, good, important, essential, as we see them, according to our values and priorities, we assume that those things that distract us are interruptions. But while most of us would prefer not to be interrupted, avoiding times of uncertainty and confusion, God uses these significant moments to shape us. God wants in on the interruption moments. And so here's a question for you. How open are you to being interrupted by God? Really, how open are you to being interrupted by God? How willing are you to be part, for it to be part of your journey in the road ahead? You want to be very careful how you answer that question. Because interruptions mean change. Change to life as you know it or want it to be. Interruptions initiate times of personal transition. They move us from one stage of development to the next. Interruptions call for a shift in paradigms. What helped us get us to here might not be what helps us get to where we need to be. Interruptions challenge our assumptions. They re-examine, they cause us to re-examine how we think our life in Christ ought to be working out. And they invite us to realign with the way and the life of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about nuisance phone calls from telemarketers in Melbourne just before you sit down for dinner or someone who speaks over the top of you and won't let you finish your sentences. The interruptions that I'm talking about here are the sudden and the unscheduled turn of events in our life, the unseen things that happen to us, the unexpected, the uncomfortable and the unwanted, the things that turn our life on its head, the stuff that throws our plans to the wind. But when we learn to see how God's sovereign in all things. When we learn how to see God at work behind the scenes, at work in the mess, involved in the details, when we begin to see the left hand of God, the things that seem to come, up, come to us from nowhere, that seem to come out of nowhere, we learn actually come from somewhere. And while it's not always good from our perspective, God can, does and will use these things for his good purposes. God does a deeper work in us in order to do a deeper work through us. The Apostle Paul said it like this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, friends, it's one thing for us to know this and to believe it. God works all things together for good. But it's another thing altogether to live it out. Another thing to see how God's hand is involved in everything. And that's where we want to get to today. At least, that's where I'm hoping, hoping you'll come away with. Learning to see the left hand of God, God at work in our lives right now. Even when we can't work out what God's doing in us, we want to be able to recognise that he's doing something. 
God invites us to see the work that he's now doing and he invites us to admire his handiwork. The events of Joseph's life have been dramatic, so dramatic it could probably have even been made into a musical. But Joseph's rapid dissension... Oh, it was, oh. Joseph's rapid dissension is equaled only by his rapid ascension. In God's kingdom, friends, the way down is the way up. Joseph was robed in his father's favour, but forced to wear his brother's jealousy. Joseph dreamed of ruling over Israel, but his life immediately awoke to the reality of a nightmare. Sold into slavery in Egypt, rejected by his brothers, presumed to be dead by his father Jacob. Just when you think you've hit rock bottom, suddenly life hands you a jackhammer. Joseph is falsely accused of sexual misconduct and thrown into prison in Egypt and completely forgotten about. That is until Pharaoh has a dream, a dream that no one else in Egypt can interpret until they remember that Joseph is the one who interprets dreams. But it's not Joseph who interprets dreams now, is it? It's God who interprets dreams. And you'll remember that in ancient culture, like Egypt, dreams were revelations. Dreams are moments of divine revelation. God revealing what it is that he's about to do in a dream. God at work behind the scenes. And so Pharaoh's strange dream reveals seven years of abundant harvest for Egypt, followed by seven years of global devastating famine. Joseph's wise plan to Pharaoh was to take 20% of the grain crops and that saw him promoted to being the Minister of Economic Affairs. Second only to Pharaoh now in Egypt, people now bow before Joseph, including his brothers who've now come to Egypt to buy grain from him. God keeps his promises. Joseph's teenage dreams are fulfilled. But Joseph's story of decline and redemption and ascension is now also... Israel's story too. And while the focus of these chapters has been clearly on Joseph, it is really an extension of the life of Jacob. You'll remember Genesis 37 verse 1, the words here on the screen. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So what God has done in the life of Joseph, God is now doing and about to do in all of Israel. Rather than starving and staying in Canaan, the drought-stricken land that was promised to Abraham, Israel now moves to Egypt. They're unlikely nomads once again. See it with me, chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father, to the God of his father, Isaac. At Joseph's request and Pharaoh's hospitality, Israel now makes his way down to Egypt. But along the way, Jacob, also called Israel, stops at Beersheba. And the question becomes, why? I mean, obviously it is, as the passage says, can you see it there in verse 1, to offer sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. But why Beersheba? Well, it's a place of historical significance, but not just in the life of Jacob. It's interesting that the passage says that Jacob offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac because it was here in Beersheba that God appeared to Abraham, the father of Isaac, after Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac as an offering. And God also appeared to Isaac at Beersheba and before setting out on his own wanderings, God appeared to to Jacob as well here in Beersheba. So why stop at Beersheba? Well, because God's revealed himself here before. 
Pharaoh might be having divine dreams in Egypt, but God's made himself known, friends, in time and space. God reveals himself to us. And although the planned destination was always Canaan, the pro- God's promise to Abraham, with Israel now on the move again, God wants to talk to Jacob about it. And he tells him in a dream. Look there, chapter 46, verse 2. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I'll make you go down. With, I, will, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Once again, God reveals himself to Jacob at Beersheba. God's promises to his people, friends, are generational. God, spoke, God sp- who spoke to Jacob's fathers now speaks to Jacob about his sons. And although moving to Egypt was never in the brochure, God tells Jacob, do not be afraid. Moving to Egypt was never part of the original plans, at least not as Jacob understood them. But God did tell them to Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards shall come out, they shall come out with great possessions. When something unexpected comes up for us, when things seem to come to us out of nowhere, our first response is one of fear. Because we want to control the situation. We want to protect the outcomes that we've invested in with no intention of ever moving to Egypt, but of only ever dwelling in the promised land, Jacob is now rightly afraid. But God tells Jacob to go to Egypt anyway because God's going to go there with him. Besides, they're not going to be there forever. Joseph will close Jacob's eyes in death. And God says that he'll bring Israel out of Egypt. God promises to keep his promises. And you'd have to say so far in the book of Genesis, wouldn't you, that God has... God has kept his promises. God is as faithful to his promises to Abraham as Israel have been unfaithful. When Joseph was still in prison, God said that he was with Joseph. And now God says to Jacob there in verse 6, can you see it? I'll go down to Egypt with you myself. God's going to be with Israel in Egypt, just as he was with Joseph in prison. He's going to use this unexpected interruption to work behind the scenes in order to fulfil his promises and to bring about his eternal plans and purposes. That's what God does. And so God tells Jacob that in the land of Egypt, I will make you into a great nation. Don't be afraid. It mean, I mean, it all sounds promising, doesn't it? I'm with you. I'll make you into a great nation. Don't be afraid. They're the same promises that God made to Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and he who dishonours you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've already seen in Joseph's life that God can be trusted to keep his promises. God at work in the details of the Joseph story. God at work behind the scenes. God said that he was with Joseph and look how great Joseph is now. 
Jacob, go down to Egypt. I'm with you. I'll make you into a great nation. Don't be afraid. But it's hard to see how, isn't it? How is God going to keep his promises? How is God going to use this unexpected interruption? I mean, at the time, there was no, there was no greater nation than the nation of Egypt. In a world starved by famine, Egypt held all of the grain. How can Israel ever become a great nation when they're living inside of another nation? How can God say that he's with Israel when they're not even in the land that he promised them? How can God promise to bring them out of Egypt when that's a 400-year-away promise waiting to be fulfilled? When it's hard to see how, you can understand why Jacob was afraid. How questions are real and legitimate questions, aren't they? How questions are cautious. They come from a place of confusion and discomfort. Maybe you've asked them too. When we can't see how, it's then that we tend to ask why. How is God going to use this brokenness in my life? Why did God allow this to happen to me? How can I know that God is with me? Why is it that I feel isolated, neglected and ignored? How can God ever change my situation? Why is he taking so long to do something? But it's here where we have to live this out. Not simply know it, not just believe it. And so in relentless pursuit of God's promises to Abraham, Jacob now does what Abraham did. Following in his father's footsteps, Jacob now has the faith of his fathers. Don't miss this, friends. Look there closely at verse 5. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt. It's easy to miss. I mean, we just read right over it, didn't we? So see it again there in verse 5. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. At some point, faith in the promises of God must cease simply being an intellectual exercise and must begin being exercised with every step that we take. God's promises require us to act on them. Faith is a long journey in obedience when we don't know where we're going, when we don't see how or understand why, when we're cautious, hesitant and reluctant, even when we're afraid, when God tells us to go, we go. Any other response is purely an act of unbelief. And so now in reckless pursuit of God's promises, in situations that he neither understood nor comprehended, when life's challenging consequences for them directly impact the generations that will follow after them. Genesis chapter 12 verse 4 says, Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Genesis 46 verse 5 says that Jacob sent out from Beersheba. Abram left with Sarah and his nephew Lot, but Jacob now leaves with a whole lot more. And they're all listed there in chapter 46, verse 8. Wives, children, grandchildren and livestock travelling to Egypt, first class now, all at Pharaoh's expense. These are the generations of Jacob. See it with me, won't you? Verse 26, 46, 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, 
who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in total. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now I know what some of you are thinking, 66 plus Joseph plus two sons doesn't equal 70. But while the numbers don't quite add up for us, what all this equates to here, friends, is 70 people. Not counting the wives of Jacob's sons, 70 of Jacob's descendants now reside in the land of Egypt. 70 people. It's not even a large church, much less a great nation. But that's what God promises Jacob, isn't it? In Egypt, I will make you into a great nation. After selling Joseph into slavery into Egypt, it's now Judah who leads the family down there and they settle in the land of Goshen, which according to Pharaoh is the best of the land of Egypt. But when you think about that for a moment, it isn't really all that hard of a choice to make because the nation's only water source is the Nile River. North of the Aswan, only 2% of Egypt is, is inhabitable. Not much of a choice. Still, Joseph introduces his brothers to Pharaoh, but when asked about their occupation by Pharaoh, they are instructed to reply, we are shepherds. And already we're being given a hint in the passage that Israel will soon be on the nose in Egypt. See it, won't you? Chapter 46, verse 34. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Next, Jacob is introduced to Pharaoh by Joseph. When, Joseph, when Pharaoh asks Joseph about, sorry, Jacob about his age, listen to Jacob's autobiography, chapter 47, verse 9. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the land in the days of their sojourning. In reference to his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, see it there, now blesses Pharaoh. And if you're listening carefully now, you'll actually hear the echoes of God's promises to Abraham being fulfilled. I will bless those who bless you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And while Israel settled in the, in the best of the land of Egypt, taking possession and receiving its provision, there's still a severe famine going on. Joseph still has an important work to do. And so Joseph gathers up all the money and sells the grain to the Egyptians in chapter 47 and Pharaoh gets all of the money. And when the money's all gone, the people sell their livestock in order to buy grain and Pharaoh gets all of the livestock. And when the livestock are all sold, they sell their land and their selves into slavery in order to buy grain and so Pharaoh gets their land and all the people become Pharaoh's slaves. While all, of e all the Egyptians suffer, Pharaoh prospers and he prospers because of Joseph. And while all of the people of Egypt now starve and go without because of famine, God is still keeping his promises to his people, Israel. See it, won't you? Chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied. Can you hear the echo again? Being fruitful and multiplying greatly were God's instructions to his people in Eden. Promises at the beginning of the book of Genesis are beginning to be fulfilled as the book now comes to a close. But Israel aren't in possession of the promised land. They have possessions in the land of Egypt. 
And as Jacob's life now draws to a close, he relies on the fulfilment of another promise made with his son. See it there, chapter 47, verse 29. Do not bury me in Egypt, this is Jacob to Joseph, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Next week in our final talk on the book of Genesis, we'll, clo- we'll consider death's realities together. But if you look carefully now, hopefully you can see the left hand of God. Because the seeds of the Exodus have already begun to be sown. Just as God's promised Abraham, a day is now coming when not only Jacob, but all of Jacob's descendants, all of Israel's children will be carried up out of Egypt by God himself. God goes before them. God keeps his promises to them. When they arrived in the land of Egypt, Israel numbered 70 in total, but by the time of the Exodus, Exodus 12 verse 37 says that they numbered some 600,000. Just as God promised Jacob, God's made them into a great nation. But friends... That's a 400-year interruption. En route to another 40-year interruption. That's a very long distraction, isn't it? Before Israel leave and get another look at the land of Canaan, it's a very long time to be taken away from entering the land that was promised to them. Things that turn our world upside down, unexpected things, they seem to come at us from nowhere. But for as long as life keeps serving up interruptions to you, God has also given you his spirit. And so that while we groan inwardly, while we wait for our redemption as sons, not Jacob's, but God's, it's during these interruption moments that God does some of his deepest work within us. It's here where God invites us to admire his handiwork It's here where we get to realign our lives with the way and the life of Jesus. And while these interruptions cause us to suffer so that we ache with longing for what God's promised to us, God works in the mess and in the details right now to bring about his plans and his eternal purposes. Can you see the left hand of God? Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that for for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Can you see it? Can you see what he's doing in you? He's keeping his promises. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't like interruptions because they are disorientating. When life gets thrown into chaos, when we don't know left from right, when we don't know what we're doing, when the world gets turned upside down and our plans get thrown out the window, it unsettles us. We are filled with fear. Would you help us to not only know and believe but to act in the knowledge that you are in control? that you are a good and sovereign God who works all things together for your good and for your glory.
that you're at work bringing about your promises, that you've not neglected us, that you go with us. In fact, you've given us your spirit to dwell within us. And so we pray this morning that whatever it is that we've carried with us through the door, whatever it is that we sit with, whatever it is that we're managing in ourselves as we talk with other people, would you help us to not only know and believe but to step into the work that you're doing? We thank you that you're a good and sovereign God who works about your promises who brings about your plans and even though they're not always in our timing, that you are a good God who is faithful. And so we ask that you'd help us to be faithful in our times of uncertainty too. That just as Jacob left, so we would follow the Lord Jesus into all that is unclear and uncertain before us. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.